BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. We'll be joined shortly by CJ Piercing. CJ for few years now has been one of the American rights up and coming stars. He is a personality with PragerU. We want to go deep with CJ and go along with him when it comes to issues pertaining to Gen Z, to the institutional and intellectual rot that is happening within American higher education. And because we want to go deep with him, we'll be a little shorter here. But the news of the day and the news of the, of the weekend, of course, is the Chinese spy balloon. And if you were like me, when you first heard that this thing was a balloon, you know, you probably weren't sure whether to laugh or cry. I mean, it's like, is it like a hot air balloon? Is like, a, is it a balloon from a carnival? Is it like, is it a, is a balloon that like a little kindergartner will get from winning a prize at a local carnival? But no, this is a spy balloon. It was a very, very large vehicle hovering way, way above the altitude at which airplanes typically fly. That, that The airplanes are typically at around 35,000 to 40,000 feet. This was hovering at roughly around 60,000 feet when it was first identified over the Pacific Northwest around Idaho, Montana, Wyoming, if I am not mistaken there. And ultimately, President Biden finally shot this thing down when it was over the Atlantic Ocean after there was another shout after there was another sighting in the Carolinas there. You know, a friend of mine here in Florida, his brother leaves his brother lives in Greenville, South Carolina, there in the upcountry part of South Carolina. Apparently, he spotted this thing with his naked eye. Look, I mean, what is there to say about the fact that this happened? Well, there's a there's a few thoughts about this. One is that China Xi Jinping and China obviously are not even remotely, are not even remotely scared of the United States of America in today's day and age. And frankly, why would you be? You know, if you are a geopolitical adversary of the United States, why would you be scared of this current administration? Why would you be at all scared when you look at what this country is doing to itself? When you look at the fact that Admiral Rachel Levine is in some high power position, when this absolute nut job, this absolute nut job who stealed the purse or the bag or whatever it was from the airport security was in charge or partially in charge of the United States nuclear facilities, this, you know, this transgender individual, I think you guys know who I'm talking about there. When, when you look at all the, uh, the white rage crap that Mark Milley has previously discussed about what, about what they're feeding the U.S. military corps, I mean, why would you ever be scared if you are a foreign adversary when you look at what the United States is doing to itself? You know, Heather McDonald, the great public intellectual with the Manhattan Institute, who specializes perhaps in the war on cops and law and order in general, but she has referred to this as, as another war. It's the war on meritocracy. It is a war on the very idea that our best and brightest in all of our various fields ought to rise to the top by sheer dint of their actual merit, their intellect, their skill. America is currently at war with meritocracy, is Heather McDonald's point, and I think that she is correct. And every single time that the United States says or does something 
in absolute buffoonish nature to promote someone for reasons that have anything other than to do with, with their skill or intellect. Let's take one concrete example here. Why is Pete Buttigieg the United States Transportation Secretary? Seriously, why? Does he have any expertise in transportation whatsoever? Are you kidding me? He was the mayor of South Bend, Indiana, a small to mid-sized city at the best, at the absolute best. I don't even think he was a particularly good mayor, by the way. I mean, crime is not exactly in good shape in South Bend, Indiana. But no, let's just call a spade a spade. This is a great example, actually. Pete Buttigieg is the Secretary of Transportation of the United States in large part because of his sexual orientation. He is literally there as a shining, visible avatar, a, 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 a peon to wokeism and to identity politics. I have a nagging suspicion that our guest CJ Pearson will have a lot to say on the issue of identity politics. Again, from the foreign policy perspective, though, every time the U.S. does a step like this, whether it's Putin, Xi Jinping or whatnot, they are going to laugh in our face. And that is clearly what the Chinese Communist Party is doing with this spy balloon that was finally shot down over the, over the Atlantic after it had traversed across the entirety of the continental United States. One other thing that is worth noting about this spy balloon, you know, you hear some people say that, oh, of course, the U.S. has to pump all this money into Ukraine because, no, it's not actually really about Ukraine. It's actually about Taiwan. You know, this this argument basically goes that the U.S. has to help Ukraine repel Russian invasion as a message to Beijing that we will stand with Taiwan if the People's Liberation Army ultimately then does do an actual amphibious assault on Taiwan to try to retake the island for the People's Republic of China. I find this argument somewhere between laughable and just diametrically opposed to the reality. Now, if you actually care about preventing Taiwan from falling into Chinese hands, which I tend to be somewhat pessimistic about, to be honest with you, I view it as somewhat inevitable that one day that probably will happen. But if that is your stipulated goal, and I agree that that would be bad, if for no other reason than the semiconductors that are there, as we discussed in a previous show last year with the great Orrin Cass of American Compass. But if your goal is to actually prevent Taiwan from being recaptured by the Chinese, why would you waste all of this money somewhere halfway around the world to the other side in the far eastern region of Ukraine? It makes no sense whatsoever. No, you, if you actually care about sending the Chinese a direct message when it comes to Taiwan, then get more involved in Taiwan or work with our actual allies in that part of the world, whether it's Japan, Australia, India, the Philippines, and so forth, to actually get them more armed up. Wouldn't that make a lot more sense than fighting this bizarre proxy war between warring Slavic ethnic groups in Eastern Ukraine between the Russians and the Ukrainians? So, so much of our foreign policy is just absolutely so messed up there. I saw Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri, who generally has, I think, keen insights on these matters, he had a, I think it was a tweet that he put out where he basically got it exactly right. He said, no, the fact that this spy balloon from China went all across the United States really should be a wake up call when it comes to misprioritization of resources. We are fighting currently in a proxy war. We are going to send tanks over to, to Ukraine at this point. We are effectively fighting a proxy war. We are funding it against a nuclear armed hegemon that happens to be a second rate power, Russia. The real threat all along is China. Xi Jinping looks at our involvement there in the eastern Ukraine. 
Do you think he's more scared of it when it comes to Taiwan? No, he's probably laughing at it. And that is a deeply, deeply, deeply discomforting thought, but I do think it happens to be reality. So let's take it to a quick commercial break here. We will be joined, as mentioned, with CJ Pearson. We will be joined by CJ momentarily. Stay with us. VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So as previously mentioned, we are very happy this week to have CJ Pearson join us. CJ, for a number of years now, despite his very precocious age, has been an up-and-coming star on the American right. He is currently a PragerU personality. He seems to be all over my television set as well. So CJ, thank you so much for joining us this week. Thank you so much for having me, Josh. Absolutely. So you did kind of burst onto the scene at a very, very young age. Why don't we get started there? So first of all, how did you first know that you were right of center or skeptical of the left wing kind of status quo? What was, what was kind of your first inklings that you were perhaps a little different from your classmates and people your age when you were growing up? Yeah, so it's kind of an unlikely journey considering the fact that, you know, I grew up in a household of Democrats with very different political beliefs than uh, the ones that I currently have uh, today. But I remember it for me, it started within my second grade classroom. Uh, you know, we had a mock election at the time. My teacher was Mrs. Best and she wanted us to do what every citizen at the time was doing. She wanted us to research the candidates. She wanted us to watch the debates. And at the end of that week, we were going to decide who we wanted to vote for. And of course, the candidates were uh, then Senator Obama and Senator McCain. And so I remember watching the debate with my grandparents this is when candy crowley was still at cnn i was sitting on the floor um, of their bedroom watching that debate and i had no idea what healthcare reform was i had no idea where iran was or what iran was but i knew that what they were talking about was really important uh and i knew that they were having a huge impact on something even though six-year-old seven-year-old cj really didn't have a clue about what that something necessarily was at the time and so i went after that debate, that Friday, I voted for John McCain. I come home so giddy, excited to tell my grandparents, hey, guys, I voted for John McCain. And they're like, you did what? You know, <laughs> I had no idea really what their politics were at the time. And, and they, I guess they told me with that statement. Um, but they were like, you must think that you're white if you voted for um, John McCain, which was interesting to me because that type of identity politics was something that obviously – I wasn't aware of at the time. I was a child. I was seven years old. Um, but it was something that was interesting to me, especially as it began the journey of me figuring out where I stood on the issues. And so after that, you know, I wasn't Republican or Democrat. I was a seven year old kid who was watching like Bakugan on Cartoon Network. So but I wanted to figure out, was I Republican or Democrat? And so. I read the platform for the GOP. I read the platform for the Democrat Party. I binge watched old CPAC speeches on YouTube and I watched the DNC convention speeches. Uh, and then I realized that I was a conservative. I was a Republican. And that was in large part due to the way in which my grandparents raised me. You know, despite the fact that they've always voted progressive, they're not Trump fans, they're not conservative, um, at least politically, 
they are very conservative when it comes to their values. I grew up going to church every single Sunday. I grew up uh, learning about the importance of family and tradition. Uh, I grew up in a fiscally conservative household. Just because we had something doesn't mean that we should use it or spend it. And so it wasn't hard for me to embrace conservatism because it was what I grew up around every single day. My grandfather also served 20 years in the military, so it gave me a huge appreciation uh, for those who served and, and, and those who love our country. And so uh, you know, but also too, I was kind of in a way free and in a way in which they weren't because I didn't, I was too young to have this idea in my head that because of the color of my skin, I was supposed to believe a certain way. Uh, and I think, in a, and it's unfortunate that I think a lot of the black community of has to go through that social conditioning in a sense that, um, they believe that truly and truthfully that our, skin color should be the determinant of our political beliefs and values, which thankfully I started so young, I wasn't tainted by that indoctrination. So, you know, I mean, this is kind of a cliche to say, but I guess I'll just say it anyway. I mean, specifically when it comes to black conservatives such as yourself, it has always just been so shocking to me to kind of hear these kind of first person stories about growing up in kind of a household where you, you had certain preconceived political expectations. And when I say cliche, what I mean here, obviously, is that anyone who has flipped through an American history book knows that the Democratic Party was the party of Jim Crow, was the party of Strom Thurmond, was the party of Bull Connor, what George Wallace. I mean, like you name it. I mean, this was the Democratic Party and we can try to memory hold that all we want. But at least I would think that for kind of, you know, older black folks in the South, I mean, you know, they their memory literally should be long enough to remember this. So I, I'm always kind of just perplexed when I when I hear some of this. But let's kind of continue with your own personal story a little bit, CJ. So let's fast forward to the 2016 presidential election. If I recall, you were involved first with the Rand Paul campaign and ultimately the Ted Cruz campaign, which I was actually pretty active with myself. But I think if I recall correctly, it was around this time that you were you were still trying to kind of figure yourself out. I think you had dabbled with with Bernie Sanders, but then you qu then you quickly came back. So what happened there? What, what was kind of your moment of doubt? And then what kind of led you back to the political right? Yeah, I was a young, impressionable kid trying to get validation from my parents again. You know, I it was interesting because it was like I remember just wanting, you know, it, it was a, it was a source of tension in our household for a bit. You know, me being really outspoken and conservative. When my first video ever went viral when I was 12 years old, I didn't tell my parents about it. I just uploaded it on YouTube and it was me going in um, on Obama for his foreign policy and him calling ISIS the JV team. And the first time my parents saw that video was they were randomly flicking through channels and they saw Sean Hannity talking about it. Uh, and they called me upstairs. They're like, CJ, get up here. How can you talk about the first black president like this and all of those things? And I was like, you know, this is what I believe, blah, blah, blah. And they're like, well, you're going to go delete this video right now. Now, thankfully, my parents were our grandparents were far too um, boomer to understand that. That's, I was like, I was so I just said I deleted it, never deleted it. And then still lives on the Internet to this day. And so um, but it was a source of tension. It was a source of um, strain in our relationship. And so at a certain point, I was just kind of like, OK, well, if this is going to make them happy, then maybe they are right. Maybe Bernie Sanders isn't that bad. And of course, when you're 13 years old, um, free doesn't sound like too bad of an idea. But eventually, I think I got to a point where I realized that I was kind of selling myself short and I was selling myself out because I didn't actually believe that Bernie Sanders was a net positive for the country. I didn't believe he was a net positive for our generation. And I also believe that as I grew older, that I would regret the fact that I had sacrificed my own integrity just simply to make someone happy. That's not the way that my grandparents raised me. They wouldn't actually want me to do that. And so I was like, here's the deal. Um, 
had a conversation with my grandparents, had a conversation with everyone in my family that I love that this had been a problem with. I said, Hey, this is what I believe in. This is what I care about. And I don't, and I think this is bigger than politics. And so I made the decision to support president Trump. And it was uh, one of which that, you know, I was proud of. You look at what he accomplished throughout his administration. We're talking about the lowest black unemployment rate in our nation's history. We're talking about criminal justice reform. We're talking about um, an America first policy agenda that, that restored America's standing in the world. Uh, that's a win. And I think that it's, it's a decision that I think unfortunately that a lot of young people face, uh, you know, for me, it was within my household for a lot of other younger people. It's on their college campuses. It's in their schools. Right. Um, you know, they may want to be conservative, but they're afraid of cancel culture. They're afraid of what their friends are going to say about them. They're afraid of what their professors are going to do to them. They're going to penalize them in the classroom. And I think that that's why it's been important for me. It's, it's something that I empathize with because I had it growing up, at, you know, at, at my house. So I get, you know, conservatives are like, well, just be vocal, just be bold. Sometimes it's hard, but I think that it also underscores the importance of it as well. And I talk about it often. The reason it's so important for conservative students to be vocal on campus is because you never know that if you are the one in the in that lecture hall that has the courage to raise your hand, you may be giving that courage to someone else to do it the next time or the next day. Uh, because I think that we are truly the solid majority. I think a lot of people, even my age in Gen Z, realize that the left is just absolutely um, just void of sanity these days. We're talking about a child sex transition. We're talking about the idea that women's sports should be able to be preyed on by biological men. There are many people my age who are just absolutely like, I didn't sign up for this. You know, like, hey, Black Lives Matter sounds like a cool th thing, but I don't like the fact that Black Lives Matter raised millions of dollars and it didn't actually go to black people. I think that's something that a lot of people that my age are finally starting to put together. It's something that I had to put together. Um, but uh, yeah, it's been, it's, been, it's been a journey and it's been great. And I think that one thing I will say, though, on, on the front of the different politics between me and my grandparents that I am fortunate to have is that it really showed me the other side of the argument. I think that far too often we surround ourselves in echo chambers and we don't oftentimes get to hear what the other side has to say. But I got to become really well acquainted with what the left has to say, which made me even more sure that I didn't want to be a part of their political agenda. So, yeah. so, so let's keep it on campus for now. Let's keep the conversation kind of tethered there. So you were at University of Alabama. You, you, you wrote a very compelling op-ed recently for the New York Post about why you decided to drop out from the University of Alabama. But before we get to that decision, tell us a little bit more about what you experienced as a conservative there, because I think most people listening to this, to this podcast will hear University of Alabama. I mean, my God, I mean, Alabama is like an iconic red state. I've been to Alabama personally many times. I've been to a football game in Tuscaloosa. I mean, I'm very familiar with, with kind of the culture there as well. But nonetheless, I mean, despite this not being, you know, some liberal kind of uh, hippy-dippy kind of Northeast liberal arts college, this is a state school in the, in the South, you still face a lot of backlash for being like an outspoken Trump supporter, an outspoken conservative there. So tell us a little bit about what you experienced there and what that says about the state of campus, I guess, that even at the University of Alabama, of all freaking schools, you were still facing all this blowback. Yeah, you know, it's insane. I think it just goes to show that indoctrination is it can be found anywhere, even in red states. Uh, and at the University of Alabama, I'll tell you, I had an incredible three years there. I enjoyed my time. You know, you talked about uh 
football uh, Saturdays at Alabama. There's nothing like it. It was so fun and such a great time. Made some lifelong friends there. Um, but it wasn't always easy. I remember during the presidential election in, in 2020, there is like people who would put things on my dorm room door, um, you know, attacking me for my support of uh, President Trump. There were um, there was an op ed that was written when I was running for uh, student government who said that my reelection, I was running for reelection as my sophomore year. They said that my reelection would be a threat to the historically marginalized communities on our campus. Now, what was ironic about that was that number one, it was written by a white liberal and two, I'm black. And so I was like, I'm very curious about what historically marginalized communities are going to be disserved by my representation um, in the Senate. But what was interesting about that, and, and, and I think it, it speaks to the divide on our campuses too, especially on campuses in red states, it wasn't necessarily um, a lot of the students that were pushing back on me, it was the faculty, it was, you know, professors at times uh, who just genuinely took issue with someone being able to challenge their beliefs. You know, I never took issue or had a problem with uh, pushing back on a professor who was saying things like, well, this conservative belief is racist or, you know, Donald Trump is bad because of whatever random emotional um, grievance they had towards them. Uh, because again, it, was, it goes back to my philosophy, like be the person to raise your hand in the room because you never know who will inspire to raise their hand next time. Um, but what was so interesting about my experience at Alabama is that whenever people would try to cancel me or whatever per se, it would just actually like get people to rally behind the idea that free speech is still cool. Um, you know, when, when our school newspaper wrote that op-ed calling me a racist and a bigot, uh, again, ironically enough, all criticisms leveled towards me by white liberals. Um, I won re-election. I won re-election. I got the most votes of any candidate running for student government that year uh, for the Senate. And so it just goes to show, I think there are so many young people who are sick and tired of being told what to believe, and if they believe something that is so-called wrong think in this modern age, that they are racist, that they are bigots, that they should be canceled, and all of these things. And it was a truly an incredible thing. I remember, uh, you know, I during my freshman year, this was right before we won the national championship. I had to plug that, of course. Uh, I went to D.C. I met with the president. Uh, I was at the at the White House, and, and t- he took a picture there. And this girl... Um, Jessica or something, Danish uh, Sheets, I'll never forget her name, made a petition to get me kicked out of school because I was supporting President Trump and her petition got 4000 signatures. And I got to say, I, you know, I looked at it and I was like, wow, like this is kind of sad. Um, and this was around like January 6th and everything like that. So she was tying the president to that and and my support of him to my, to, to like so-called support for January 6th, which I disavowed. I think it's wrong. I think it was violent. But they were like, oh, we're going to like he should be removed from school because he's endorsing you know Donald Trump. And so I was like, this is ridiculous. But I could have made the decision to just let them win in that in that regard. But I was like, no. And then a little bit of a Jordan Belfort, Wolf of Wall Street. And I said, I'm not leaving. And I made a petition of my own and her petition got 3000 signatures from people who don't go to the University of Alabama to kick me out. My petition got 80,000 signatures for me to stay. Wow. Uh, and there are tons of people on campus who are like, CJ, thanks for fighting. Thanks for um, you know speaking up. And, and I think that means a lot. And I think it just goes to show there's a lot more support for our values um, among young people than there are, but it's this, it's this uh, faculty and staff who are just truly and trying to push their, 
their liberal ideology down the throats of so many young people. And, and it's sad, but I think it just goes to show we need young people who are going to fight back on our canvases, but we also need young people who can go to other canvases and get them to fight back as well. No, we sure do. And I just want to reiterate for those listening here. Again, we're not talking about kind of a liberal arts college. This is the University of Alabama. Yeah. And they literally, this is an SEC school. I mean, from about as, from a state that it is as red as it gets. And you still had people basically trying to kick you out just for going to meet with the president. I mean, that is just, that is just bat crap insane to me. But, you know, look, I, I hear you and I agree with you when it comes to the, you know, the people, uh, some data points like what you said about all these tens of thousands of petitioners that, say, that saying that you should stay there. But, you know, the polls don't lie. I mean, the numbers do show that that Gen Z right now is is not looking particularly politically good, I think would be a, a, an understatement um, from from a right of center perspective. And, you know, you are one of the leading Gen Z activists, I think, when it comes to kind of right of center America. What what do you tell your fellow Gen Z people? I, I mean, like, how do you kind of try to get them to be more active, to be more outspoken? And do you think Gen Z is actually lost as a generation or can the right of center actually make inroads there, meaningfully speaking? No, I think I, I think we can definitely win Gen Z back, because I think if, if you look at the, the most recent midterm elections, yes, it was not ideal among that among our demographic. But I think you also have to look at Roy v. Wade. Uh, that's an issue that is truly animated a lot of young women um, within my generation. Um, it is something that's really interesting to me and peculiar. Like even at Alabama, like you will have the most Trumpiest sorority girl in the world who is like, I don't like that Roe v. Wade was overturned. And, you know, I think it also has to do with the fact that there's not a lot of education about it. I think the left made it seem as if like abortion was completely criminalized all throughout America um, with that ruling when it was just simply left to the states. A lot of people don't know that. Um, especially among my age group. And so that was, I think, an important thing there that also contributed to what we saw from Gen Z in the midterms. But what we also saw, the media didn't really talk about it, is that youth support actually went down, I think, 11 or so points um, among that 18 to 35 demographic um, from the midterms prior uh, among Gen Z. And so I think the biggest thing, too, when I think about the issues that are really resonating with young people as to why they shouldn't um, embrace the left is basic things like it actually is the culture war. Um, people aren't OK with biological men playing women's sports. People aren't OK with the idea that children should be able to undergo gender transition and, 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 and mutilate their genitals at a young age before their frontal lobe is even fully formed. Um, and they're also not OK with critical race theory. Uh, they may not know what critical race theory is or how you um, or what that actually entails. But when you explain to them that it is the idea that white people are perpetual oppressors and black people are perpetual victims, they're like, well, I don't know if that's something I really actually believe. And so I think it also has to do with cancel culture. You know, it, it, my generation is cancel culture from the sense that, you know, we've grown up with cell phones since we were little kids. Every decision, every mistake, every bad opinion, every bad take that we have is going to be permanently documented on the <laughs> Internet um, forever. And and the idea that you cannot grow and the idea that you cannot be redeemed or the idea that you should not be extended grace is something that for obvious reasons would make people in my generation very, very uneasy. And so when I think that you see people on the left who are constantly trying um, to just silence dissent and, and, and silence diverse voices uh, and not and when by diverse voices, I mean a little bit differently than the left. I mean, people that just disagree uh, because they love to talk about diversity of skin color, gender, pronoun, whatever else. But when it comes to diversity of thought, they never really want to have that conversation. But I think that's when you actually get young people who are like, oh, well, I think that 
this is America and free speech is good. You know, the most notable experience I had in Alabama when people would really rally behind me and support me were when they felt as if people were just trying to take away my right to disagree. And it wasn't just like, oh, I also support Donald Trump or, oh, I also, you know, believe this or believe in that conservative policy. They were just like, I don't know if I believe that yet, but I do believe that you have the right to believe that. And so I think the more radical the left becomes, I think the more Gen Z is going to open their eyes. And I think it just goes back to that old adage, right? Like if you're a liberal before you're what? 20 or 30, then you have no heart. But if you um, are one after or one after that, then you have no brain. And I think that it's just a part of growing up. I think we're going to eventually find our way. Um, but I think it, it requires conservatives to be proactive, which is why I'm so excited about what like Prager U is doing, what a lot of other players in this space are doing, because it's like, the left is reaching young people with this indoctrination at such a young age. Like yeah. look at Disney plus look at YouTube kids. Um, you know, they're pushing like LGBT propaganda, telling kids that, you know, that it's okay to not know what gender you are. Like they're literally targeting like five-year-olds with this nonsense. Right. And so, and it goes back to the biblical truth, you know, train up in a child in the way that they should go. And when they're old, they will not depart from it. Conservatives need to have that same energy, you know, like, let's not like stop. Let's, Tell your kids why they should love America. Tell your kids uh, the rights and the liberties that they are afforded that are unique to them because they are American. And of course, so let them find their way. But if the left is targeting your children with all they have, why shouldn't we? No, it's very well said. So let's take it to a quick commercial break here. We've got CJ Pearson from PragerU on with us this week. We will continue the conversation on the other side. Stay with us. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. So, CG, let's stay on the topic of higher education just for a second here. So, at least from my perspective, higher education remains a thornier issue, I think, for the American right to try to confront. I think we have a a basic idea. I'm not saying that that K-12 is in good shape right now, but I think we have a basic idea of roughly where we need to go. And it's, it's basically, from my perspective, it's kind of a two-pronged approach. One is kind of a firmer hand of government and legislation, similar to what my state of the state of Florida has been doing as far as just saying, no, we will not teach XYZ woke indoctrinatory crap. And on the other hand, we simultaneously will give more vouchers, school choice, similar to what Governor Ducey did in Arizona. Our legislature here in Florida is gearing up for something similar. So I, th- I think K through 12, we have a rough idea of, of the policy tools. But I'll be honest with you, I, I really do not know exactly what to do when it comes to higher education in particular. I mean, we definitely have to get rid of uh, the, the ridiculous kind of over subsidization of student loans to major in like, uh, you know, like lesbian dance theory and all this crap that you'll never get a return on your investment for. But I guess my question to you, as someone so front and center of kind of the higher education culture wars, would it be best for conservatives to basically just abandon the playing field to kind of retreat to our own silos? Or is there still can we still actually make inroads from a, an academic or a student body perspective in most mainstream campuses? You know, I, I hit on that in my op-ed um, that you talked about a little bit earlier about like, how do we actually confront this issue? Because it is a particularly thorny issue like you talked about. And I think it's it goes back to the power of the dollar. You know, colleges are a business, although they are a heavily subsidized business, um, but they still are a business. And I think that, it, you know, Charlie Kirk talks about this. We need to have alumni 
fighting back. You know, if you see your 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 alma mater descending into this wokeism, uh, then withhold your alumni contributions. Uh, and I know that particularly works at SEC schools where we put a lot of money towards football stadiums <laughs> and everything else. Uh, you know, that means something that means a lot, um, you know, season tickets, all of those things, uh, I think make them feel the, you know, the, the, the power of the purse strings and also to be intentional about where you send your students. You know, would I recommend the university of Alabama to people who want to have a state school experience? Yes, I absolutely would. But I, I think at the same time, it's one of those things where it's like, you have to be intentional about the time you spend there. And also, um, you, you have to, don't be afraid to fight back. Don't be afraid to push back. Cause you're going to find a lot more support, um, than you, you know, than you, than you really expect to have. But I think, uh, DeSantis has really, uh, I think made the blueprint for it. I, I mean, I'm incredibly excited about what he's doing in terms of restricting state funding of DEI initiatives at college campuses. I think that's huge. Um, it, it's incredible to me that, you know, you'll look at the administration, of so many of these universities and the only people that they have, like, you know, in the uh, senior leadership of these universities, the only person of color that they have in the senior administration is the person that does DEI, which is ironic because it's like, yeah. you know, you're all for diversity, equity, inclusion, but the only black person on your payroll <laughs> at that level is the DEI person. So I guess they're not doing too good of a job, but like, you know, that's the thing you're making $300,000 a year to try to make people less racist. I think that's absolutely a fake job and, and should absolutely be defunded. Um, but I think that's that's incredible. And what I really love to see is and, and this is what we need to see more in red states, particularly there is no reason that DEI and all these things should be receiving state funding in red states like Alabama. They shouldn't be receiving state funding in red states like Texas. Um, and we have to actually use the power that we have. There are a lot more solutions than I think um, that people are aware of. But also, too, one thing that I think was really kind of innovative that DeSantis did on the college front with the new college of Florida, like stacking the board of trustees with people who are not necessarily like trying to reverse indoctrinate kids in terms of just push conservative indoctrination down their throats, but are just saying like, we want every viewpoint represented. And if you aren't okay with those viewpoints, then you can go. You know, I saw that video that Chris Rufo tweeted where they didn't want them to do some town hall with the faculty and staff. They tried to shut it down over some angry email. And then the president was like, well, um, you know, I can't let you do this after, you know, protect the student body, like from what, like different opinions. Is that what you're protecting these kids from? And then they fired her like she's gone. And I think like that's like the type of ballsy stuff that we need to see, um, because at the end of the day, these faculty and, and, and professors, they think truly and truthfully that they run. Um, these campuses, that they are the final say so. But that's not true, especially in publicly funded institutions. The taxpayers run these places. Uh, and if they're pushing these ideas that white people are all bad, black people are all racist, that there are 186 genders, um, I feel like a lot of taxpayers in states like Alabama, states like Florida, states like Texas, Louisiana, Mississippi, aren't okay with that. And I think they would give tremendous leeway to their elected leaders to um, nip that in the bud. And I think we just, honestly, at, at this point, I'm just like telling people, like just follow the Sanchez playbook, uh, especially when it comes to <laughs> higher education. On most issues, it's safe, but definitely higher education. I, I've seen, there's a level of innovation there um, that he's truly deployed on this issue that I think should be replicated in every single red state by every single conservative governor. No, I mean, this show is definitely a fan of Governor Sanders. I think would be would be yeah. a, would be would be an understatement, and this whole thing with the new College of Florida is very exciting. So, I mean, you let, let let's see what happens. Obviously, Chris Rufo is a 
a personal friend. I, I think that he knows exactly what he's getting in for, and I wish him nothing but the best of luck there. But in theory, that really should be the blueprint, as you said, for kind of institutional recapture. I mean, the left has now had a century-long march through the institutions, of course, as a famous expression from Gramsci, the Italian Marxist theorist. They've been doing this now for 100, 120, however many years this has been going on. And they at a bare minimum, like the smallest thing that the right can do is when we actually have power, especially kind of undiluted power in a red state like a Florida or a Texas to actually use that power to try to recapture institutions. And that's actually a great transition to what I wanted to ask you next. So this whole kind of idea, at least from my perspective, of when you have power to actually use power, to wield power, to implement a vision, to me, this is kind of the this is kind of the mindset of the so-called new right, like this whole kind of slightly more kind of populist kind of hands-on approach to conservatism that has really kind of been fomenting or, or fermenting, I should say, over the over the past few years or so. But it's actually quite a bit different to kind of a more libertarian strand of conservatism. And that's kind of what I wanted to ask you about, because, you know, I, if I recall, you know, we, we talked about Rand Paul a little bit. That was kind of your first foray was in like a slightly more kind of libertarian leaning side of the conservative movement. So, you know, just over the past few years or so, have you noticed your own kind of politics and your own kind of conceptions of conservatism shifting at all? I think I have, you know, I think, you know, your listeners can't see it, but I was smiling ear to ear when you were talking about, you know, the importance of conservatives actually using power when they have it. It mystifies me how, you know, people forget we had all three branches of government at one point, not too long ago. Um, But, Planned Parenthood wasn't defunded during that time. It took how long, um, you know, for us to reform uh, you know, or try to repeal and replace Obamacare? I, I worked in my first campaign in 2014. I was 11 years old, knocking on doors, making phone calls uh, during a midterm election. And I was telling people that if my guy won, that we were going to repeal and replace Obamacare. We were going to have term limits. We we're going to do all this and that um, with a new Republican majority. And there are no term limits. We never repealed and replaced Obamacare. John McCain stood in the way of that. Uh, and we didn't defund Planned Parenthood. And like, that's the thing. It's just like, I got tired of seeing the left absolutely bully, intimidate, just downright it, it victimize us. Like, I hate to use that word, but victimize us when they when they have power. Look at the way in which they've weaponized the DOJ against conservatives. Look at the way in which they've weaponized every single institution and lever of government against their political enemies. You have people going on trial for protesting out of Planned Parenthood clinics right now. Like, if that's not the type of stuff that doesn't make your blood boil, then I like I don't know what truly will. And so maybe that's what made me a little less libertarian, just the the downright outrage of it all, because we do have the power to fight back against this nonsense. And we absolutely should. And that's another thing that's got me super. I hate to keep talking about him, but, but like that's another thing that gets me excited about DeSantis. He knows how to use power. And I think that's so important. I saw the thing today. Um, I was on Twitter. He revoked the liquor license of a drag queen, <laughs> I like, <saw> that. <laughs> uh, like child drag. Like that's incredible. Like I wouldn't have thought of that. I, I, and that's incredible. It just, and I think that's the point. Like these people have made a decision to use power to oppress us. And if we, and if we have the option to either 
live on our feet or live on our knees, I'm going to choose to live standing. Uh, and so I think, yeah, it's important for us to use those mechanisms of power because we're, again, at a time of choosing that Reagan, you know, used to talk about where we have to choose what type of nation we will be. Will we be a nation of opportunity, of morality, of freedom, of liberty, or will we be a nation in which we literally have modern day McCarthyism being waged against people of different political beliefs um, on the political right? Um, I'm not okay with being a perpetual victim and I'm sure as hell not going to let, let the left make me an actual victim. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm totally in favor of fighting back with every mechanism of power that we have at our disposal. Yeah. At the end of the day, the question is, are we going to be subjugated or are we going to take that one hand that had been tied behind our back and untie it and actually fight back? And at least for me, I mean, I, I definitely personally used to be slightly more kind of classical liberal. I was never like a true libertarian or anything, but I used to be at least be kind of more of a doctrinaire classical liberal. For me, one of my red pilling moments, which I think was a very popular red pilling moment, so to speak, for many, was what happened to Brett Kavanaugh in 2018. I mean, what, when I saw September 2018, I was actually, I was clerk, that was the year that I was clerking. So I was kind of offline that year as I was clerking for a Fifth Circuit federal judge, so I couldn't publicly tweet or anything. But what I saw on C-SPAN, just the Democrats throwing out 5,000 plus years of civilizational norms pertaining to innocent until proven guilty. Are you going to try and tell me that the proper right of center response to that is to just try to be civil and try to reach for some, you know, yearn for some moral high ground that may or may not exist in the figments of some, you know, D.C. bureaucrats imagination? I mean, it's just farcical. It's just absolutely farcical. But I guess one more question then, speaking of DeSantis, it sounds like you're obviously quite excited about his his political career. And when we look towards 2024, just talk to us a little bit about what you are also looking for, I guess, besides Governor DeSantis, then um, how do you expect this field to shape out? And is there anyone in particular that you are thinking about as someone whose candidacy you might be excited about? You know, I'm keeping an open mind as it, as it relates to 2024, but I think that um, it's going to be a spirited primary. I don't know if it's going to be as spirited as 2016. I don't think anything will ever top that, um, but it will definitely be uh, very interesting. And I think that I think the you know it, it really goes hand in hand with the conversation we're having. People are looking to win again. I think there are a lot of conservatives, truly and truthfully, right now who do feel subjugated. They feel targeted um, by the government, and they are not wrong to feel targeted. Um, we have a media that gaslights us every single day about the state of this country. Um, they allow this administration, they allow the left um, to redefine basic words like recession, inflation every single day. Um, and I think people are looking to win again. Uh, electorally, politically, in their personal lives, people are just aching to win again. And I am right there with them. I am tired of being on the outskirts of power and watching the left destroy every single institution that matters in this country. I am tired of watching them try to normalize just absolute degeneracy in every single aspect of our life from these child drag shows to um, this, uh, the, the, you know, the like it, it just what's happening with women's sports. It's absolute insanity. Um, and so I think it's going to be a big field. Uh, I think, you know, we have Nikki Haley announcing uh, next or next week. Yeah. And then you have, of course, you know, folks like John Bolton, I guess, looking to also make a run, which will be interesting to see um, what he does there. But, you know, at the end of the day, I think this is a two person race. It's going to be Trump versus DeSantis. Uh, and I think that, but we'll say though, the bigger the field is um, it does benefit Trump. Uh, I think there will always be the 30 percent of people who will right. always be for Trump, always will stand for Trump. And so I think it's interesting. And I think a lot of people are going to have to like contend with this who don't necessarily want Trump as a nominee. Well, you've got to all coalesce behind someone. And the only person I can think of 
truly is DeSantis, um, who can really mount a winnable campaign against him. Um, I think, and, and, it, and it, which is why I think, you know, for me, I think it's important for DeSantis to run this year because I, I look at Nikki Haley, right? And I think Nikki probably should have ran in 2012 and it would be a very different race. She'd be entering this race as like the one to watch. But now that it's 2022, 10 years later, which is so crazy to think about, um, it's a little bit of, it's a, it's a different kind of thing, right? Um, so I don't know. I think it's going to be an exciting time and uh, I think it's going to be, it's going to be contentious. I think I've already seen kind of the first little attacks and it's only going to get spicier from here on out. So excited to see it. But at the end of the day, I think, uh, I think, I think a primary helps us. I think we need the strongest possible nominee to emerge from it um, because it doesn't matter who the left puts up against uh, puts us up against. They're all going to coalesce behind him. It doesn't matter um, if they are, just absolutely mindless. Look at what happened in Pennsylvania. Um, they choose their guy and they're back their guy. Um, and I think that that probably gives um, the right something a little bit to learn from. But yeah. yeah, I mean, it seems like to me that that iron does sharpen iron as, as the expression goes. And, yeah. that, and that primaries, for the most part, are good. On the, on the other hand, I mean, you know, 2016, where these the field was so big that they literally had the kitty table, like the people who were polling yeah. so far in the background, they didn't get onto the main stage. I'm not sure that helps anyone other than President Trump, like you said. So, uh, you know, from his perspective, it seemed to me like he was not particularly upset that Nikki Haley entered the race because from his perspective, you know, yeah, yeah, I mean, it it makes it makes a lot of sense, frankly, why he would not be upset there. So we will see. I mean, I guess if I had to guess, a lot of these donors are going to have to have some very difficult conversations with each other. Right. I mean, they're going to have to basically consolidate the money to give us the best chance possible of ultimately prevailing against this horrific president, Joe Biden, of course, in the 2024 election. Election. Uh, CJ, we're unfortunately out of time on, on this show. This has been a really great conversation. Where can everyone find you? Why don't you just go ahead and plug your, your socials? Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you so much for having me, Josh. It's always great to uh, chat with you. They can catch up with me on Twitter at the CJ Pearson. They can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, everything there. And also catch up with me on PragerU, where I'll be hosting a new show called The Wrap Up, giving you the top five stories of the week every single week um, without the spin and fog of the mainstream media. Because I think now more than ever, I think as we just kind of hit on, the media is gaslighting the American people every single day. We need real news, not fake news. Uh, and so couldn't be more excited to be doing that with PragerU. But yeah, again, thank you so much for having me, Josh. You bet. And let me, let me make a quick shameless plug, actually, for PragerU, which I view as one of the most, inst- I, I really do view it, actually, as one of the more indispensable organizations that the American right has these days. Just if you, if by some slim chance, you know, you and the audience here are not familiar, please do go ahead and check out PragerU. There are just so many wonderful videos that have accumulated over the years, five, six minute long, hard hitting, punchy, informative content on really any issue that you can possibly imagine. But until next time, my friend, thank you so much again for joining us. Cool, man. Thanks so much for having me. So thanks again to CJ Pearson for coming on this week. CJ, just incredibly well-spoken for someone his age. I mean, frankly, when I was that age, I was totally not that well-spoken. I was totally still trying to figure out a, exactly what it was I, I believe in. I guess, you know, to an extent, I guess I'm still doing that today. I guess we're all still doing that today. But the way that he speaks about Gen Z in particular, it's hard not to come away with at least a little hope. And, you know, the expression that the kids say these days is they say you're smoking hopium, right? You're you're smoking hopium if you're kind of unnecessarily optimistic. But 
Look, I mean, if anything that he is saying is remotely true about the conversations that he has on campus there, I mean, the sheer number of people who signed that petition in opposition to this outrageous idea to kick him out of University of Alabama for being a Trump supporter, it sounds like that petition was countered in dramatic fashion. I mean, again, it's Alabama. I mean, your mileage may vary as to how far you want to extrapolate that to the rest of the country, but definitely something to be said for that. I do want to send a bit of a cautionary note. Um, you know, CJ, what you, what you heard him say there is there's this very old line that's gotten passed down for generations of politics. So, you know, if you're not a liberal when you're age 20, you have no heart. If you're not a conservative by the time you're 35 or 40, then you have no brain. I will say that there was some study that came out recently. My friend Inez Stepman of the Independent Women's Forum actually flagged it for me recently that did show that that trend, which may have had some kind of empirical heft to it um, a few generations ago, is looking less strong today. Put, in, put another way, millennials in particular are not necessarily voting more and more Republican or leaning more and more conservative over time. We will see how that changes. And again, if I had to guess the best way to try to incentivize and to kind of get these changes where the generations grow up and, and become less and less besotted with the leftist nonsense in general, you have to present an alternative. You have to actually present a clear and convincing alternative. Again, this is kind of the sine qua non of this whole broader, somewhat amorphous new right project. You have to stand for something. You can't just oppose something. And just as importantly, you can't just say live and let live. All choices are equal. Everything is equal, blah, blah, blah. No, you have to present a clear and compelling vision. So you heard CJ mention the transgender issue when it comes to uh, women's athletics in particular there. Well, what is the alternative to the leftist, you know, fetishization of swimmers like Leah Thomas and things like that? Well, the alternative is that there are two sexes. There is male and female. That is how God created us, and that is just how it is. <laughs> that is literally how chromosomal structure works. There is male and there is female, and this is just the way it ought to be. That is a very clear and compelling and convincing alternative, and to the extent that we can just replicate that among all the various other issues, critical race theory would be, would be another example. You heard CJ mention that as well. That strikes me as perhaps our best chance for ultimately moving forward there. I do also come back just to the thorny knot that is higher education in America. I, I, I wish I had kind of a, you know, a, a quick and dirty policy response to what the, should be the American right's best perspective. I will say the one thing that I have given thought to recently, now that I'm a fairly recently uh, engaged person uh, and who, who will be married later this year, I, I, it's probably premature, but I will say I have already been thinking a little bit about kind of the higher education for, for the children issue. And, you know, look, I mean, I, I have fancy degrees from these overpriced schools, but I, I've honestly been thinking recently and it's premature. I'll be honest with you. It's obviously premature, but I have been thinking recently, like when my kids, you know, uh, uh, God willing, uh, obviously those kids, when they reach that age, would it be good parenting? to send them off to these madrasas of wokeness, as the aforementioned Inez Stepman has previously referred to it as. I don't know. I really don't know. And honestly, I think I lean on the side of no. But we need alternatives. We need more Hillsdale colleges. That's obviously what Governor DeSantis is trying to do here in Florida when it comes to the new college of Florida, as CJ and I also talked about here. So lots and lots and lots of good stuff, but hard not to come away from that conversation with CJ Pearson, at least feeling a little, little bit better on the margins about where we are and where we are going to be going next. 
So until next time, hope you enjoyed this conversation with CJ Pearson. We will be right back with you with a new episode next week. Hope you have a great week. Until then, we'll see you next week. <laughs>